All planning, interviews and recording for this episode have taken place on Ngunnawal country. This is The Grass Ceiling, a guided tour of sustainability. Sustainability is ever-changing and complex, so join us as we break it down and figure it out. My name is Sumi. I'm one of the hosts of this show. And I am Nick, and I am one of the other hosts. So in episode one, we sort of tried to give a history, like a context and definition of the word sustainability. And I think the conclusion that we sort of came to really was that it depends. There's no one definition of sustainability that can apply to every single person or every single context. But I think in a way, that's the beauty of the concept. You know, it started with a pretty simple story about environmentalism and environmental concerns, and then sustainability morphed out of that into many, many other things. And and that's why we ultimately landed on it depends as an answer as to what it is, because, you know, it concerns a lot more things today. And that'll be, I think, relevant in today's episode, just keeping that history in mind. So in the previous episode, we talked a bit about the three pillars of sustainability, and those are ecological, economic, and social. And those three pillars interact with one another in a way that maybe we could say that it's a a check and balance of sorts to make sure that maybe social outcomes are not compromised in the name of an economic goal. And that's great for businesses and policymakers, but sometimes those three pillars may seem a little bit distant to the rest of us. Sure, a bit abstract. So I guess the question is, you know, how, how can the rest of us make sense of it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name's uh, Brett, uh, Brett McNamara. I'm manager with the ACT Parks and Conservation Service. All right, Nick, you know this about me. I love national parks. <laughs> yes, you do. So it was really, really exciting and awesome to be able to sit down and chat with Brett, who's been involved with parks and conservation for a very, very long time and not just in the Australian Capital Territory. I suppose I'm, I've been very fortunate that I've had a very long association with both ACT parks, but also more generally park management. Uh, I started my career as a ranger way back in 1980 uh, as a trainee ranger up in the Conservation Commission of the Northern Territory. So I've basically, the last sort of 36 years, have had this association with, with conservation management or, or park management, as we call it today. And I suppose I've seen a lot of changes over that time, that the art of park management has evolved over that time. And perhaps to give you a bit of context about that, what do I mean by the art of park management? I suppose when I first started as a ranger, it was all about plants and animals. National parks was all about plants and animals. And the parks were declared and set aside for the ecosystems, the, the plants, the animals that evolved there. And over time, we then expanded that concept to involve things such as heritage and huts. Uh, we also then expanded to involve, I suppose, you know, the Indigenous involvement in terms of that landscape, the cultural landscape that's out there. But I suppose in more recent times, I've, I've come to form a view that park management is really more about people management. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what we do as environmental custodians, as these park managers that we call ourselves, is really about people management. And I suppose, what do I mean by that? What is this concept of people management? Well, if you think about it, uh, well prior to 1788, when Europeans arrived on a very ancient landscape, uh, the environment was looking after itself. It was doing a pretty good job too. In fact, it was doing a marvellous job. It's only in the more recent time, the last couple of hundred years, that, that we Europeans, uh, through the touch of the human hand, have had an adverse impact on the environment. And the causation and the consequences are what we now deal with in terms of being park managers. 
And if you think about it in very simplistic terms, um, today rangers are out there controlling weeds. But where did the weeds come from? Like weeds came as a result of the touch of the human hand. Um, we're out there controlling feral animals, uh, pigs, horses, deer, goat. Where do they all come from? They came as a result of what we humans have done. So this job as a park manager, you know, particularly here in the ACT, would be the easiest job in the world if we didn't have to have people in the equation. And it's the people side of things, which is what we do today. So park management is really about people management. And I suppose one of the things I certainly advocate is for people who are studying environmental backgrounds, who want to be rangers, who want to have some sort of involvement with the environment, which is, which is a wonderful cause to be involved with, really need to understand the people. You know, what makes people tick? How do people interact or don't interact with the environment? So it's almost like 101 people management you need to understand to actually be able to apply some of those principles to, to what we do. So, yeah. So earlier in what Brett said, there was just something that I want I just wanted to bring up really quickly. And he mentioned that the environment can manage itself, you know, and the touch of the human hand is what has led to adverse impacts on the environment. And I think ultimately when we talk about things like the management of physical places like parks. It's important to think about what the what the ultimate goal is, what we consider to be positive or negative impacts. And what he said about, you know, the environment can take care of itself and the environment was taking care of itself sort of implied that prior to European colonization, the Aboriginal people who uh, have been here for millennia uh, didn't really have that much to do uh, with the management of country, which isn't entirely true. Just now in that story, you I guess you mm. were telling about environmental custodianship, you mentioned 1788, and that, of course, is the time when the first fleet arrived here in Australia and colonisation mm. began. But, of course, the landscape has been managed mm. for thousands and thousands of years prior to that. And I guess I'm just wondering, what is it that might have been different with the European way of managing things upon arrival in Australia from the, you know, the first peoples, the Indigenous people yeah, in Australia? Look, that's a wonderful question. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to turn back the clock and be there in 1788 to sort of, you know, 1790 as we Europeans were venturing onto this landscape and say, you know what, maybe we should sort of stop, look and listen and learn from what was actually happening with the, with the Indigenous landscape you know, looking at their ways, their practices, their, their way of actually moving across the landscape. Uh, I sense uh, that uh, that we didn't um, and that, you know, we brought sort of, I suppose, European thinking to a very ancient landscape. And you can see that with the animals we brought, you know, the fox. Why do we introduce the fox? Because we felt like the foxes were good back home, back in England. So the foxes were introduced. The pigs, the deer, the goats. So, And it's easy to say all of this, obviously, with hindsight, 2020 hindsight there. But you would have liked to have thought if we did have our time over again, maybe having a little bit more compassion, a little bit more empathy, having a little bit more of an open-mindedness as to what was occurring prior to 1788. Things might be a little bit different. But, but that's in the past, and we can't obviously change that. And I guess my message is one of looking towards that future. You know, there's a classic line about you learn from the past to inform the present to guide the future. And that really is, I suppose, a, a concept that is always on the top of my mind about learning from the past and inform the present to, to guide our future. When Europeans came, they sort of brought this impression and this understanding of what the environment should be with them and and attempted to apply it wholesale to a very, very different uh, environmental context. And a different way of managing the land too, I'd say. Yeah. So it's not just that they were coming over with European style of thinking, it's also that they 
lacked a sort of, he, you know, he talked about the importance of stop, look, and listen, right? But that would have implied kind of a fundamental rethink in how they even thought about, you know, ecological management, which itself wasn't much of a formalized concept back then. But even if they had those direct conversations, I think, with those first Australians back then, they wouldn't have fully understood it. Does that make sense? You know, you've got two civilizations evolving in very different ways and with some pretty fundamentally different ideas about their connection with nature. So if we think back to the three pillars of sustainability, so once again, ecological, environmental, social, at first it seems pretty obvious that park management is primarily concerned with the environment. So if we conduct the right tests and know everything about the right plant and animal species, we can't go wrong, can we? Well, not exactly, because you've got to remember what Brad said about park management being about people management, right? I mean, he's talking about social values and the way sort of we as humans relate to and understand our natural environment. On social values, it kind of sounds like you're talking about something that might be considered to be a fourth pillar of sustainability, which we'll go more in-depth into in a future episode, and that's culture. And culture has to do with the way that people relate to one another, their beliefs, their values, the sort of paradigm that they're in, I guess, with knowledge. So you're looking at the three pillars, societal, economic, and environmental. And there's something about the word social, I think, that doesn't quite capture culture. You might look at, say, sociology to understand society, but there's going to be elements of, say, sociology or anthropology that don't provide you a full account of culture. And for that, you'd might want to look at, I don't know, literature, poetry, visual arts, um, even history, philosophy. Culture is kind of a, it's a very tricky thing to describe. And in that, in, when we talk about it in that future episode, um, it's based on some work by an Australian academic who spent, you know, who wrote a whole book on the on the subject and spent like the first three quarters of the book just trying to define and hammer down what culture is um, before he even got to the point of making an argument about it. So, but yeah, that's the the idea in a nutshell. Is you add a fourth pillar is what he was saying, um, because the social alone doesn't fully capture it. We'll see a lot of arguments about sustainability out there, and within them, we'll see a lot of logical fallacies. And one of those is the false dichotomy. And the false dichotomy um, essentially presents you with a false situation where you have to choose between A or B. And in reality, there might be C, D, E, and F, and so on down the alphabet available to you as well. But a, a false dichotomy presents it just as a binary choice between one or the other. And the reason I'm talking about this is because we see this a lot when these different disciplines or these different areas of interest come into contact. So the social might conflict with the economic or the environmental particularly might conflict with the economic. We often um, hear that we cannot afford to pay for so-and-so environmental program and this is often presenting a false dichotomy between you know paying for it and going forward. Or more broadly, we might see this in the ongoing war between, say, arts and the humanities versus uh, STEM, so science, technology, engineering and math and so on where on one hand, art contributes to the culture and the social side of things, whereas the STEM sort of contributes more to the economic or the environmental and so on. There's kind of a philosophical war being waged at times between these two camps because both of them claim in their own way to be sort of arriving at the truth. Not everybody believes that, you know, in that kind of problematic way, but, you know, you can come across an engineering student, for example, who thinks that, you know, philosophy is worthless. And you can come across a philosophy student who thinks that without, you know, some underlying philosophical understanding of the world, engineering is useless. And this is all a good example of a false dichotomy, right? Like we don't have to choose between the two necessarily. In most cases, we don't have to. In most cases, they can be complementary or supplementary. And the knowledge that each different type of inquiry you get is going to change as well. So 
under a sort of STEM science technology approach, you might be much more quantitative. So you might care more about numbers and raw data. Whereas if you're doing like a sociological or anthropological thing, you're trying to get answers about society or culture, you might be more qualitative. So you're talking to people about their feelings, their inner thoughts, their preferences, their behaviors, their beliefs, their values, and so on. So there's parts of each discipline that contribute, I think, to a greater synthesis of the truth rather than it being a sort of a zero-sum game where two disciplines enter, only one discipline leaves. Right. So in making decisions on something like managing parks, we sort of need to draw from an understanding from various disciplines. Maybe it has to do with earth system sciences, understanding how the physical processes that shape our natural world might influence human behavior over time, or how maybe a new internet trend might affect uh, people's behavior and how they interact with nature. And Back on what Brett was saying about park management being about people management, we sort of need to think about how society and politics is shaping people's behaviour and how people either interact with or make decisions on parks over time. Just one discipline is not going to tell us the full story. It's obvious that we live in a time where there is a lot of change that's happening, that any work in conservation that takes place needs to be adaptive and needs to recognize that mm. you know we need to act quickly mm. so my question is how does the ACT Parks and Conservation Service how do you respond to new information that you get what is your process of you know learning and implementing those yeah. sorts of new facts that seem to come out on almost a daily basis yeah look that's a, again it's a wonderful question and I suppose it's 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 one of those ones where we've been able to be a open to that information. I think, I think sometimes as organisations, you know, we operate within a little bit of a silo and, and that we sort of hear our own voices. I think we need to be able to be have open mind and to be able to see these new and emerging trends. Uh, look, the other thing I might just touch on here, I suppose, is is around the, the relevance of parks as well. And, and, and it's something, I suppose, that I'm very conscious of in that Again, if you like, traditionally as a park service, uh, we've spoken to community groups such as, you know, bushwalking groups, um, um, you know, people who are obviously part of the, if you like, uh, have empathy towards the environment. So we've been very, very good at talking to those groups. So what I think we need to do as a park service is be very mindful of new and emergency communities. You know, the city today that is Canberra is a very, very different city to what it was when I grew up here. So how do we then make the, the environment that is the bush capital relevant to those people to take away the mystique of it all and they then become the environmental champions but it's a wider base than just a narrow focus in terms of traditional community groups there and that's probably one of the big things I see as a park agency that we really do need to be relevant to our community and if we're not relevant to our community our community will turn around and particularly perhaps at the ballot box and say well what's parks all about why is that important to us Actually, this was something that was brought up at an event that you and I attended some time ago, which was organised by the volunteer-run National Parks Association of the ACT. We spoke to the 2018-2019 Vice President, Cynthia Burton, after the event. What would you say are some of the key takeaways or observations from today in terms of, like you specifically mentioned, uh, engaging you know younger people and so on? Um, but I guess more broadly, like that's almost strategic level goal that we have here today, which is to keep that organisation going, a community volunteer, largely volunteer run, isn't it? Yeah, yeah so 100%. 100% volunteer run, right? <laughs> Sorry, 100% volunteer run. So, yeah, there's this challenge, I guess, in 
keeping that ball rolling like what would you say just after running this event today as some of your some of your takeaways in terms of you know uh, that community management that organizational management sort of aspect of everything I think the main takeaways for me personally would be first of all the importance that we develop some new strategies in terms of how we engage with not only younger people, but people of all different backgrounds, um, whether that be cultural, whether that be by age, um, or any other, any other way that people identify themselves, that we need to have more creative outreach strategies and to map out where, where do different groups of people um, gather and enjoy themselves and do the things they believe in together and tap into that network and see if they also have a shared interest with us and, and a shared belief in what we're doing, which is about protecting our national parks. And that ties in really closely with what Brett said about keeping parks relevant to people, recognising that there is a diversity in the ways that people may value and relate to protected areas. And it ties into, I think, that broader point we're trying to make here about bringing different disciplines together and recognising that a single discipline is not going to get you there. I mean, the problem that both the National Parks Association of the ACT and Brett is facing here is a communications problem. You know, it's that requires an understanding of human psychology. It requires an understanding of, you know, best practices in communication, um, not just science communication, but like, you know, press releases and engagement more generally. You know how he was talking about how it should be people management, right? So there should really be somebody on his team who's really savvy with social media, who understands memes maybe, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I think we're still seeing um, these organizations kind of trapped beneath the grass ceiling, you know, to use the, the sort of central theme to our research, you know, this idea that they're still kind of stuck too much in the environmental. No one organization or group has perfect knowledge of current issues or future issues. Uh, it would be very arrogant of any organization and the kiss of death, I think, to it to get stuck in its own, in its old ways and not think that there are other opinions um, out there and points of view and issues emerging. So the reason we brought so many groups together, one was to have that diversity of knowledge and experience to inform us on issues we may not have even thought of that someone else has been dealing with. The other is to... Um, learn more again about what are new and emerging issues from the point of view of different organizations and different age groups as well. This organization started with a mission to create a national park in the ACT 60 years ago and it was successful and that's the reason we have for example Namaji. Clearly uh, that's an established institution now that park but there are many needs it has for future protection. There are issues arising all the time in a changing political and environmental landscape. We've got to get, um, get a good grasp of the implications of climate change for uh, the future of our parks and the future of our city and the whole ACT area. And we also need to get uh, a good grasp on also a whole new range of issues that we didn't have to deal with in the past, which is the growing urban landscape of the ACT and how do we support good decision-making in government and support community voices to come out and have a really robust, genuine conversation about what is a good, clean, green future for our city and to share 
that, that knowledge and experience and have conversations with people who may not be familiar with environmental issues so that they come on the journey with us to understand why this is going to be important for their lives, their work, their children, their grandchildren, and so on. So yeah, as Brett and Cynthia have mentioned, there needs to be a conversation across disciplines and different parts of society in order to plan for a sustainable long-term future. But I guess the question is, how do you actually make that happen? Because it's all well and good to know that you need to be talking across disciplines and you need to have a broader transdisciplinary understanding of how things relate to one another. But how do you actually make it happen? Well, according to this next person, you got to do a Nike and just do it. The Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment is an independent statutory position established in 1993 by the ACT government, and much of their work involves investigating and reporting on matters relating to the environment and sustainability. Hi, Kate. G'day. Kate Audie took up the position in 2016, and she's been on many advisory boards and councils and was also the Commissioner for Environmental Sustainability in Victoria before coming to Canberra. And one way that Kate's office makes sure that they're not stuck too deep in one silo discipline is by making sure that their staff don't all come from one disciplinary background. So uh, Kate's a lawyer by training. They've got a water ecologist who's done lots of field work in environmental reporting. They've got an environmental engineer, a spatial mapping and analysis expert, an environmental law graduate, and a human ecologist who had... Just left to go on maternity leave, and she's the first person in the office to ever take maternity leave in, ever since 1993, which tells you we've changed some of the demographic. And that interview was done some, you know, quite some while back, so that staff members probably returned from maternity leave by now. Congratulations. <laughs> and I've been really struck by the raft of fantastic young people that are coming through, and it makes me feel pretty gratified about the need for a succession plan to know that we'll be handing the work on to people who have a real commitment to what we need to see happen about the environment, climate change, human interactions with the environment. So it's really nice to have that uh, bunch of young people working in the office, and they are a relatively new crowd in the office, and they're bringing fresh ideas, which is which is what we want to see, because you can't keep... Rep- repeating what we've always done, which is big, dense reports with recommendations, hoping, with your fingers crossed, that people read them. We've got to find innovative ways of getting the material into other people's, uh, you know, ways of understanding the world. And this crowd in my office are really up for that challenge. So before we sort of move on with talking a bit more about the work that the Commissioner for for Sustainability and the Environment does... So far in this recording, you and I have used a term a couple of times over, and that was, I think, transdisciplinary. And I know there are also two other words that have to do with working across or between disciplines, and those are interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. And I get very confused by definition, so I feel like we should sort of break that down just explicitly for a second. We have multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary. Uh, Now, if we want to be as technically correct as possible, multidisciplinary would be the combining or involving of several academic disciplines uh, to a single uh, approach or a topic or an issue. Interdisciplinary would be relating to more than one, typically going between two. So say uh, biochemistry is interdisciplinary because it transcends two disciplines. And then transdisciplinary again, relates to more than one. All of these words essentially get confusing because they all mean more than one discipline, but trans means across all the disciplines. 
Now, if you were to ask me what's the difference between transdisciplinary and multidisciplinary, I wouldn't really be able to tell you, but I think it's important to flag that um, the way that we're using this term, they're all kind of synonymous in our parlance, but there is a more, uh, I guess, academically rigorous discipline out there that is much more exacting with these words and, and uses them in, I guess, more specific ways. But for everyday language, which is sort of the language you and I want to be conversing in, I think, I think it's enough to say that this is about the bringing together of multiple disciplines. And we might say interdisciplinary, which is technically meaning only two, but for our intents and purposes, it's the same as transdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. And hopefully the scholars in that area won't hate us too much for that. So the Commissioner's Office have got some level of understanding of working across disciplines, but in order for the work that they do on understanding the sustainability needs and concerns of broader society to actually be relevant to people, they've also got to reach out beyond their own knowledge and expertise within the office. I also take the view that we need to be consulting really actively with uh, NGOs, peak bodies, people who want to talk to us about the work. So we have to think creatively and constructively about what we're hearing and find ways to incorporate that in the material that we're producing. And one of the other reasons why I do that, apart from finding it absolutely critical for making a report tell the story of a community and its environment is that it assists people to become a bit of an advocate for what we're doing if they're thinking that the story is also their story. And we've found that extensively across a whole range of discussions. When you involve people in the conversations you're having and in the reports you're doing, they become a bit of an advocate or a conduit for the message, which I think it means that everybody's engaged. It's a way of making sure that we're doing, in inverted commas, community engagement without seeming to do it in what I might describe as a really formulatic manner. To return to what I was saying earlier, there is this common thread between what Cynthia Burton in uh, National Parks, Brett uh, Parks and Wildlife, and what Kate's trying to do with her office. All of them have this problem of engagement, I think, or this challenge of engagement, if you don't want to problematize it too much. But they have this challenge where they need to engage people. And yet, with respect to each of those groups, there's not really a strong presence in any of their teams of somebody who's, whose job it is to do that. You know, they have a human ecologist, for example, in Kate's team, but that's very different from somebody who knows, you know, exactly the best ways to reach people via social media, for example. And if you go and look at um, the commissioner's Facebook, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot of traction on Facebook, for example, um, which is a shame because they're creating all this beautiful content. And as, as Kate was sort of going through her list of, you know, the disciplines she had on her team, I was struck by two thoughts. First of all, wow, that's a small team. They're producing these massive reports, but they're also massively important reports. They're reported on widely in the media. You know, they influence policy. And we're talking about just a handful of people here. Like, I was surprised um, just how small the team was. I mean, obviously, as she said, she consults and whatever with NGOs and brings other people in, but still... Um, you know, if I was Prime Minister, that would be a 50-strong team, right? And on that team, um, I would make sure that we had people who understand their way around social media, who understand their way more theoretically and conceptually around communication more broadly, you know, um, drawing in other disciplines like uh, psychology, you know, what's the what are the best ways to get people to respond to a message, what are the things that you should avoid and so on. But yeah, uh, it, you know, it just struck me that she's talking about the need to find innovative ways to engage with people and this is falling upon you know, a spatial mapper, an analysis expert, um, an environmental engineer. And, you know, it's sort of outside of their discipline. And I'm not saying they can't do the job well. But yeah, again, if I was PM, there would be a 50 strong team. It would have people who were savvy in communication, but then also would have lawyers, 
Um, I, would, I would love to have an economist on that team as well. I think it's really surprising that you have a body that's providing reporting to, a, to an MP or a minister and there's nobody there crunching the numbers. You know, you would think that would be the one, num- number one reason why they refuse to follow through on a recommendation. Ah, oh, can't afford it. Costs too much, you know. Anyways, just a, just a thought there on, on the composition of the team and, and the size of it. And just that general thread, I think, running throughout all three of these interviews is that there's a challenge of engagement and what it would really look like on the ground, I think, would be those, those teams looking quite different. So obviously you, you would have an understanding of how the work that you do relating to the environment extends beyond the environment and, you know, that's shown by the staff that you have working with you, that's shown by uh, ref- references within your reports that talk about things like um, the importance of community and, and social aspects of sustainability in the work that you do. But in the way that organisations tend to be set up, they tend to have, you know, a funding body that gives them a certain focus and they're expected to produce something within that and therefore working across disciplines or across organisations may prove to be a bit of a maybe a logistical nightmare uh, for them. What do you have to say about that? How do you think we could potentially better operationalise this sort of collaboration between disciplines within our institutions and organisations? Look, just the first point you make, funding's always difficult. There's no question about that. What I am always struck by is that funding is a limiting factor in many in certain ways but volunteering always picks up and runs with it so it's always been my experience that people are willing to contribute work to the causes that they care about so that's the first thing I'd like to say working across disciplines is potentially quite difficult for people who are working in the way we always used to work as a lawyer which is my background I could be quite obviously just doing a lawyer's work I could be thinking about going to court advocating for people maintaining a reference to the precedents making sure that it's all toes every every I is dotted and every T is crossed and that's what you have to do but there are things that come through even in a lawyer's practice for instance which tell you that you're going to do better if you're thinking outside the square thinking about not just your clients mental health but maybe their housing issues not just their housing issues but how they get to court for instance that brings their transport issues up so it's got to be an individually driven thing but where we say to ourselves what are the systems issues here my method of operating to incorporate other disciplines is just to be really open to it and most of the time I find that my networks are of use to people because I just take it so seriously that there isn't a person I speak to who I don't know how they might link to other things and it it means that I'm in, in a way quite exploitative of knowledge I think there's no doubt about that but I think and act all the time to network and I think we have to be prepared to say to ourselves that we don't have to be central to that network. We can be really good at delegating and saying to people, you need to speak to X, you need to speak to Y. And as long as you're surrounded by other people who are excited by the prospect of broadening their knowledge and doing a better job, they will always take you up on that. I have a bit of a bone to pick here, and that's that Kate's approach really, really relies on the individual to take action. That doesn't inspire much confidence that 
that sort of networking, that sort of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary or multidisciplinary, I don't know which one's the right term to use here, (laughs) that that collaboration is going to be something that stands the test of time. What if, say, the next person who comes into Kate's position just doesn't really care too much for networking or just hasn't built up those networks over that long career like she has, and then that really affects the work that they do in the commissioner's office? Like, I don't know. I feel like there should be a more of a institutional focus within institutions to guarantee and to commit to working between one another and building those long-standing networks rather than just relying on the people who hold positions to do that. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you there, Samir. So this year I've been sort of volunteering my time as the environment officer for the university here at at ANU. This is fundamentally the problem that I think we're facing as an organization and I'm facing as sort of the one of the leaders of that organization um, because I very much empathize with Kate's approach. I like the idea personally of just being somebody who has their fingers in many pies but isn't necessarily committed to any of them and so somebody comes along and says, hi Nick, I want to do so-and-so project or I want to learn more about this and then I can say, hey, you should go and talk to you know, this person. And I think there's real value in that and I think it takes a certain sort of mentality to want to be that kind of person rather than the person who's sort of, um, I guess takes more involvement on a given thing I, I like to just facilitate myself and the thought occurred to me is kind of what you just mentioned right so what happens when the next person next year comes along what if they're not kind of into that networking and relationship building that I am you know I've I've started building relationships with our organization between our organization and many many others this year and yet all of that could fade away next year unless we bake it into how the institution kind of works like is that kind of what you're getting at there when you're talking about yeah, but I I guess, you know, when you were talking about your role as the environment officer, a thought just occurred to me that if we were to sort of bake it into the institution, as you say, what if the next person who comes along has an entirely different conception of the sorts of networks that they that you might focus on? What if they come from a very different disciplinary background well, or something? Well, that's, that's already happened, right? So I had one kind of approach to the networks. I was reaching out to environmental NGOs and so on. And this is through the first half of this year. We're about halfway through the year now, just um, for the context for people listening. And um, in that first half of the year, I was very focused on, yeah, just local community organizations kind of focused on environment and sustainability. And one of the criticisms that I've received, you know, in more recent times is that, you know, that's left out really important stakeholders, um, one of them being kind of indigenous advocacy groups, um, who, who a lot of people, I think, justifiably argued should have played a more central role in that first half of the year. I think that ties into what you're saying, you know, what if somebody comes along and they have a very different idea about, you know, what that networking should look like. Um, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think the more people that get involved and the more networking that's happening and the more that's kind of encouraged at an institutional level, not by any particular individual, but it's more it's kind of baked into the culture of how an organization works, I think the better you're going to be overall. So we're sort of changing tack for the next half of the year and giving a bit more of um a leadership role to the people who want to kind of build those relationships in the community and and have that kind of a networking unfold. Um, and I'm just taking a step back and kind of doing what I always did, but just kind of a bit more behind the scenes while we more, I guess, proactively and publicly build those relationships elsewhere. So I think it's more about bringing, bringing more people in and as an organization rather than as a leader or as an individual, encouraging that culture of of networking and transdisciplinary and different views, different values. It's very complicated. It's very tricky, I'm going to say, having trying to navigate that myself. You know, it can be quite political and quite fraught at times. Yeah, I think that networking isn't ever something that there's a right or wrong answer to. Like every way that you could approach it 
every person who decides to take a different approach and stance on who, which are the relationships that should be prioritized and how should those relationships be used and practiced, how in, how involved should another organization be in the decisions of your organization. Like the levels of engagement can really, really vary. And I think it's really up to those networks to sort of figure out how they relate to one another and to what extent they want to take what the other person is giving. In my conversation with Brett, he raised an example of a collaboration that I guess it was it was one of those one of those relationships between two parts of government, the ACT government, that I never really thought would I would see come together. And apparently it's yielded some really, really awesome results. So I'm just gonna play what he said real quick. Every maybe couple of months or every once a year or so, I see things in the news in the Canberra Times about uh, these people going out to, uh, you know, out to the dirt roads and doing donuts and things like yeah. that. And you're always going to have people mm-hmm. um, like that who are not going to, I guess, respect um, yep. respect the landscape. What does like what does parks do yeah. about those people? Look, and that's something again that I have seen involved uh, the art of park management, being people management. Um, we have a, a remarkable relationship with ACT policing, uh, and within ACT policing, there's a dedicated unit called Rural Patrol, and their whole charter is basically to have a police presence out in the, the parks in the rural areas there. So eventually, uh, we do catch up with this antisocial behaviour, and uh, and you're right, uh, it has increased dramatically over the last probably ten years or so, particularly four wheel driving activities, pig hunting activities, uh, uh, illegal hunting within the park. Uh, but again, through the ACT policing, uh, we generally catch up with these offenders. But what's really important and what's happened in the last few years is the restorative justice process. Uh, so while these people are uh, dealt with in terms of offending under, under the Nature Conservation Act, and they're obviously a police matter there, they're then referred to the restorative justice process. Um, and restorative justice, basically, it's a roundtable conversation where the, the offender sits down uh, with, the, if you like, the victim, that is, the park, and, and there's a conversation we've had. Uh, now, I've been involved with a number of these restorative justices over the last sort of 10 years, and uh, from personal experience, they are incredibly powerful in that initially the offender goes, well, I didn't have any idea. I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought it was just an area I could go four-wheel driving in. But through that conversation, similar to what we're having here today, understanding the values that we as a community have set on these areas there, um, you know, it's been my experience that most of these offenders have turned around and said, look, I had no idea. I'm terribly sorry. To the point where they then volunteer their time through the restorative justice program and come out and work with the rangers. We'll actually spend a couple of hours fixing up whatever it might be, working with the rangers up there and understanding and having that empathy for what we do. So yes, there's a compliance element to it. Yes, there's a legislation and there's there's a police enforcement. But that restorative justice program in terms of that education awareness is incredibly powerful. And uh, it's something I think, again, as a community here in the ACT, we're very progressive with in terms of being able to sort of say to people who do have environmental vandalism, you know, fences, they will just spend some time walking in the shoes of the ranger, you know, picking up the mess you've made, you know, dealing with that issue there. And through their circle, their peer group, there's a communication that happens there. And again, that is very, very powerful. So uh, so I guess, yes, through that restorative justice is one way of actually dealing with, uh, with people. Again, it comes back to where we started the conversation. It's not about nature. Nature looks after itself. What we do is about managing people. And that's a very good example of that. It's a great example, I think. All right. 
So, so far, all the examples that we've been discussing seem to have been looking at government or policy-focused solutions, you know, park management, sustainability reporting. But sustainability solutions can take place at different scales and with different focuses. So we can take the example of plastics. There was a class that Sumi and I took a couple of semesters ago now, and we worked in, uh, in dreaded group projects where we had to come up with a solution that would reduce plastic packaging on, on fresh produce, essentially. So the two of us were in different groups, and the class itself was, I think, split into four or five, and you could see just between the groups uh, all the different ways we approached our solutions kind of exemplified, I guess, what we've been talking about in this episode and, and goes beyond that to deal with issues, I, I, I guess, of scale and, and focus. Right. So, Nick, would you talk a bit about the approach that your group right. took? Right. So, our group, at, at my kind of urging, um, took a very top-down, um, high-level, high-impact, uh, or we hope it would be high-impact approach. And very global scale. So we wanted to have an international plastics convention. Um, and by convention, I don't mean like a Tupperware party. I mean like um, we wanted to have a, a treaty or a, a binding uh, international agreement um, on reducing plastics and tackling plastics. Sumi, what did your group come up with? <laughs> so my group came up with this thing called the supermarket. And I know it sounds a lot like supermarket, but it's not. It's soup, like S-O-U-P, and then a market. So, you know, it's a pun. And basically our solution was a lot more small scale. We focused on these smaller communities of plastic consumers, people who would buy their produce that would have plastics on it and sort of encouraging people to rather than rather than buying plastic packaged stuff would no wait, what was the solution? I thought it was to reduce food waste. So yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So right. food that was going off would be um, turned into soup that you could eat in the supermarket. Yeah, you know, you know my solution better than better than I do. I think one of the reasons why we decided to go with what we did was that one of the ways that plastic packaging is so-called good for fresh produce, one of the reasons that's justified for its use, is it sort of protects the mm. stuff that it's encasing it prevents damage from it and it's not necessarily just protecting it from the outside atmosphere but also within that you know inflated bag you can have an artificial atmosphere too so that's why apple slices can last for like you know a whole week while still sliced sitting in a bag when on your kitchen counter they would go brown in like 10 minutes the sort of supermarket solution what we what my group sort of ended up finding out was that the problem that we were trying to tackle didn't only relate to plastic packaging it also would have to do with you know why weren't people buying the oddly shaped carrot you know that had these three or four bulbs sticking out of it and I know there are a lot of there are a lot of community groups that are people are preventing this fresh produce waste by turning them into products that you know you don't know what shape the carrot was once it's blended up into a soup basically (laughs) that's a good point do you think that one of those two approaches, the International Plastics Treaty or the smaller scale supermarket, do you think that one was better than the other? No, I don't. So I studied this quite a lot. Um, our, our group work inspired me to actually do my final end of semester essay on an International Plastics Treaty, which I then actually got um, really good grade for and then uh, turned into a, an actual journal article that was published in uh, ANU's undergraduate research journal. And so I spent quite a lot of time and effort looking at Um, this idea of an international plastics convention. I focused on the work of two proponents out of a Belgian think tank whose name 
escapes me right now. Anyways, in looking at what some of the biggest and most well-known proponents of an international convention are saying, they're actually not saying, you know, this is the one idea to rule them all. They're actually quite explicit in saying we need bottom-up stuff to happen at the same time. We need responses from civic society. We need responses from government. We need responses from businesses outside, above and beyond a binding convention. And in fact, I think one of the most telling things that they said um, that I found in my studies is that before a treaty happens, before a convention happens, before anything like that happens, we're first going to need a whole lot more effort from civic society, from government, from business. They create the sort of necessary preconditions. So before it's even possible to have an international plastics convention, we might first need to have a supermarket. You know what I'm saying? Like these are kind of stepping stones and then this is maybe like a, one of the big sort of end goals that we could we could strive for. Well, I guess with many sort of sustainability challenges or issues, the reasons as to why unsustainable practices are at play isn't just – there isn't just one reason for it. You sure. know, the reason why people might be using plastics – may have to do with the fact that plastic is cheap at the moment, but it may also have to do with the fact that plastic is a material that meets their needs. Maybe they need something that's waterproof. And it's only by, I guess, coming at it from various different points of intervention that we can really get to understanding what those reasons for the use of, say, plastics is and therefore, you know, flipping that around. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think, you know, in more humid countries, for example, plastic packaging tends to be a bit more important than in uh, more dry ones like ours. So even something as simple as that. To come to a more broader, maybe abstract question that has to do with uh, what we've just been talking about, it's this idea of individual change or structural change. You know, does, say, me not eating meat um, have as much of an impact or is it as important to focus on that or is it more important to focus on putting pressure on corporations to stop their polluting activities when it comes to the environment? You know, how do we sort of weigh up those two? What if someone has to go further out of their way or it's more expensive to obtain something that may seem to be more sustainable but then at that is at the expense of another maybe more structural level goal that they might be working towards using that time that they've uh, gone and spent on, I don't know, driving a couple of extra miles to get the non-GMO soy or something. I don't know. This is a fundamental and recurring issue in sustainability, I think. So we've got two ideas ultimately in conflict here. We've got one idea, which is the need for prioritization. We do need to know what's the most effective thing to do. You know, is it top-down strategic stuff or is it bottom-up individual stuff? Is it structural change or is it individual change? What should we prioritize? Because in some cases, we do have to make a choice. It might be a choice between where we're putting our money. It might be a choice between where we're putting our time or where we're devoting our you know, passion or what we're supporting and so on. So that's the first idea. And then in conflict with that idea is that earlier one we mentioned about a false dichotomy, right? Which says, no, we don't have to choose. It's not a zero-sum game. We can do both things at once. Whether or not you're in one situation or the other changes on all the time on what you're looking at, on what scale you're looking at it. And I think this like this is what I see again and again in sustainability. And and I see people who all ultimately agree that something good should be done and then fundamentally disagree and and, and go at each other like enemies, like and with hatred in their heart and everything, talking about systemic versus individual change and so on. It's a very sort of polarizing argument and sometimes it should be because we do need to prioritize 
And sometimes it shouldn't be because it's a false dichotomy. And I think both things can work and should and must sometimes work together, you know, kind of like meeting in the middle. You know, you need the top down stuff, the international treaty, and you need then the civic advocacy and whatever that might be happening through, say, a supermarket style initiative. But yeah, this is like a fundamental and recurring thing. If you load up any Reddit thread, any Facebook comment thread, if you're feeling bold enough, any YouTube comment thread, you will see this same argument happening again and again and again. People arguing, oh, it's the corporations that we need to hold to account. You know, we need to, or it's the laws or it's the economic system that needs to be torn down. You know, people going for the big structural stuff. And then you'll see other people saying, you know, well, the corporations have millions of customers and that's us. So it's an individual slash kind of collective responsibility that we have and we need to change our behavior. And, you know, going vegan, for example, is, you know, one of the singular most effective ways to reverse climate change. So it's like they're not without an argument either. So I think this is going to be a recurring theme in our discussions, in our conversations, this individual versus systemic or um, top-down versus bottom-up sort of approach. Solutions to a sustainability issue can sort of take many different forms and there are many different ways that we could uh, we could approach it as we've already discussed. And I think that how we end up doing it might depend on a couple of considerations or factors. So time pressure is ultimately a driver of that kind of issue that I was talking about before. So when we have to make a choice between prioritization or just being all inclusive, it's usually time um, as one of the the key drivers because if we only have you know a week to solve a problem then we can't be all inclusive we have to kind of whittle it down to the the bare bones of the problem similarly with um feasibility you know affordability being a key one certainly at one point we'll be discussing in in some depth a project called drawdown which attempts to provide a sort of prioritized list of ways to effectively combat and indeed reverse climate change and that prioritization is based on some pretty simple criteria. It just looks at emissions reductions and then it looks at net savings and net costs. So it's factoring in there, I think, feasibility. And that has to be, I think, a core consideration for any kind of a solution because we can have a technically beautiful, you know, scientifically elegant solution, but if it's going to cost the the sun and the moon, then it's not going to be a political reality. Or if it's going to require something, you know, perhaps that goes against social norms, for example. And I think a great example there is just not eating meat or switching to a plant-rich diet. That goes against norms, so it's not a very feasible thing to expect the world to go vegan. It's more likely that we're going to see a a meat alternative um, become popular as a way of that happening rather than people adjusting their behaviours. Right, and I think that that relates to another sort of factor or consideration that might affect how we approach sustainability solutions and that is innovation like you said because telling people to stop eating meat might be a bit of a challenging thing to convince people to do having convincing meat alternatives that may may taste a lot like the real deal may allow us to still get people to reduce their meat consumption while not having to give up that that habit or that that tradition or that culture yeah absolutely and i think this ties into that broad uh, theme and that topic of this episode, which is, you know, bringing different disciplines together, right? So you might think if you want to change culture that you should bring in science communicators and culture changers, artists or marketing people or whatever. You, you might think that's the best way to convince carnivores to eat less meat. 
But then yet another approach might be, hey, let's just use technology and engineering to create a beef patty that bleeds. We'll get this hormone that we pull from the root of the soy plant and we'll chuck it in with some other things. And we'll just kind of mish it mash together in this like mad scientist lab looking place. And out pops this, you know, veggie burger that actually bleeds and convinces people. You know, that's another way of changing culture that has nothing really to do with what you traditionally associate with culture, you know, poetry and art and whatever. This is a bunch of people sitting in a lab mucking around with soy proteins. So there's different ways to go, to, to go about a, a given problem and a given solution. And sometimes the best solution comes from kind of where you'd least expect it. Maybe sometimes a poet solves it when you were expecting a physicist to. And sometimes maybe a food scientist solves it when you're expecting, you know, a poet to. And with sustainability, it's almost necessarily about looking at the long term and thinking about where are we going to be in maybe 50 years, maybe a thousand years, and where do we want to be? What sort of world do we want to be in? How do we want people to relate to one another? And I think a bit of a problem with that is that it's hard to predict things like maybe the impact that technology might have on us or even the way that people's cultural values or norms change, the idea of morality or the idea of what's appropriate, what's not appropriate uh, for people to do. Is it okay for governments to have some powers that may allow them to really intervene in people's personal lives? Like these are all tensions that might affect the feasibility of a sustainability solution taking place that we can't necessarily foresee into the future. We can know what the situation is now and we can maybe with a certain level of accuracy predict what might happen in the next week or two. And maybe even sometimes we can't predict that. But if we're talking about sustainability, which is something so necessarily long term, that may be hard to plan for. Yeah, I think so. I think um, in a lot of the cases, um, I mean, history is, I think, littered with examples of good intentioned um, solutions to problems that ended up having um, bad outcomes. Back in the early 1800s, there was a competition held um, to create some sort of a new synthetic molecule that could replace the ivory used to make billiard balls because ivory was a pretty finite resource, you know, it had to come from the tusks of elephants. And that's what they would make all of the billiard and snooker balls with back in those days. And anybody who could come up with a replacement like a synthetic ivory um, would win, you know, a fairly sizable chunk of change. I think it was like $10,000, which is quite a lot back then. And so somebody came up with that. Um, this was kind of the invention of plastic. And at the time, it was heralded as kind of an environmental savior because, you know, it wasn't just the ivory that we no longer needed to make the billiard balls. It was the tortoiseshell. We didn't need to make the, you know, tortoiseshell hair combs and sunglass rims and all that business. There were all sorts of natural resources, even just wood and certain sorts of rock. They could all suddenly be replaced with this new and amazing cellulite and, and bakelite and plastic and all these sort of early forms of plastic. And that was true for a time. That was a, it transferred one natural resource draw on things like ivory and tortoiseshell that was very highly impactful to a much smaller resource draw. And for a time, that was a good kind of solution. But now, 100, 150 years later, plastic that things. same tortoise has now got a plastic straw in its damn nose. And it's like the whole th problem's just come full circle. And, and now plastic is killing the nature that it was once sparing. So It's like the premier killer of the environment, <laughs> pretty, pretty it seems much. like. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's actually an excellent example to illustrate exactly what you're talking about with the long-term problem. We cannot see the future. We cannot know what we don't know. The Grass Ceiling is hosted by me, Nick Blood. And hosted and produced by me, Samithri Vekna-Subramanian. 
Thank you to Brett McNamara, Manager of ACT Parks, Cynthia Burton, the Vice President of the National Parks Association of the ACT, and Kate Audy, the ACT Commissioner for Sustainability in the Environment, for their time in speaking to us. A special thank you to our supervisor, Edwina Fingleton-Smith, and also to the ANU Centre for the Public Awareness of Science for letting us use their recording studio. For more TGC content, check out our website at www.thegrassceiling.net. Just wanted to add on two more thank yous. Firstly, to Jackson Weeb for all the music used in this episode, and also to the ANU Fenner School of Environment and Society for all the support in making this project happen. And now, it's bloop time. And we also need to get a good grasp on... I lost it. (laughs) (laughs) You can go from me to get a good grasp and I'll edit it out. Okay, what am I grasping for here? (laughs) There's things like climate change and... um...